the RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com. And you're very welcome to the RTE Rugby Podcast as we reflect on the quarterfinals just gone. Leinster through to the semifinals this weekend against Toulouse. Munster falling foul of uh, what was a very cruel sudden death penalty shootout. And La Rochelle scraping through as well. So Ron Regarra to face Rassing in an all-French second semi-final. Delighted to be joined by Donald Lennon and by Fiona Hayes. To look back, Donald, I know you were there, as you were you, Fiona. Um, look, uh, time to reflect on things now. It's a horrible way to go out, given how well Munster played. But that's sport, right? There has to be a winner and there has to be a loser, unfortunately. Yeah, that's the way it goes. But I think if you look at the occasion as a, as a whole, I mean, right from the... I left Cork early on Saturday morning, looking forward to the trip, and I was just blown away by the amount of cars, uh, the amount of red flags, red, you could see the jerseys, people sitting in the cars. Uh, Munster, to be fair, had this initiative where they uh, gave subsidised buses to a lot of the clubs, and you could see the buses going up. Uh, then, you know, when the Cork-Limerick road merges there just before uh, Port Leash you could see all the flights coming up from the other side so it was you were, you were beeping like mad at the Port Leash I tell you what I was doing typically you crowd up in Dublin and Leash you didn't realise there was a game on they had three boots closed on the uh, that's right. on, that's right. on the toll boot so it took us 20 minutes to get through you see the country crowd are all coming up so yeah. happy you take a day off why did you get one of those tags, Donald, that I keep telling you to get and things that you just zip through in the fast lane? It makes your yeah, life easier. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have a tag, I have a car. That's the difference. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but but no, it was, listen, yeah. it was it was special. I mean, I, I um, you know, I was going to the match just, you know, an hour and a half, two hours beforehand and just coming around the corner by the Lansdowne Clubhouse. I was just this wall of people and it was... Uh, Families together, like uh, mothers, dads, kids, girls, boys, all waiting for the Munster coach, you know, with the way the coach goes in underneath uh, the Aviva Stadium. Uh, it was a brilliant sight. Uh, people were in the ground early. People actually sat in their seats and watched the match. There was none of this going in and out for beer in the middle of it. Uh, the atmosphere from day one was was electric. It, it was reminiscent of the, you know, the, the old... 2006 Munster Leinster semi final uh, in the old Lansdowne Road. There was just so much colour. And, uh, you know, I felt sorry for the 500 Toulouse fans who were kind of dwarfed into one corner. But look, brilliant occasion, great match. Uh, I, I'm sure we're going to talk about the merits or otherwise have a penalty shootout. But uh, overall, for me, Munster turned up. They played to the best of their ability, they played great quality rugby. Uh, they weren't beaten in a hundred minutes of action, uh, and you know it comes down to a lottery in the end. Yeah, it is a complete lottery, I guess. Um, even when you have three decent kickers on the pitch, Fiona, as we saw, because anything can happen. But uh, Munster, I think the Munster outdid themselves. You know, for for a lot of people, I mean, I, I certainly didn't think they'd, they'd finish within ten points of Toulouse. That's been honest, like just on the basis of, of what we've seen from Toulouse over the last two seasons, and I guess Munster, who have been improving, but uh, I just didn't think that they'd be able to live with Toulouse firepower. But they did. 
Yeah, they did. And, you know, uh, I suppose at the start of the game, I was a bit nervous looking at the scrum um, and scrum penalties and, and where that would have taken. But Munster seemed to settle down on that. I think um, Josh Witcherly was absolutely immense around the park and and he learned how to hold that scrum as well and, and stop that power, getting that quick strike in at times, which was really good. So, look, I believed you. I believed uh, from day one when, this, when they got this uh, match and I knew even up with what Munster Rugby were doing outside I knew there was going to be a big crowd I knew people were annoyed a bit about the Ed Sheeran stuff so they, they were they were really bringing their A game supporting wise and when Munster have that kind of support they seem to be lifted by the crowd and they just played some excellent rugby and I know the talk after is is Peter O'Mahony and, and what he done around the pitch that day but but I think every single one of them put everything on the line for that game and we saw it and it was unfortunate the way it, the result ended up but I it was just exciting I was up near the two lose fans um they weren't as loud as they normally are you know but it was mm. it was enjoyable everyone was enjoying the rugby and that's what you want on a sunny day yeah okay well let's talk about the merits i guess of the of the penalty shootout done i mean there isn't really an alternative is there when you have such a compressed season as we have for the clubs along with the international calendar they're, they're literally we've spoken about this before there is no wiggle room for games that finish in a tie like that in order for a replay to be allowed so when you can't facilitate a replay, you must have a winner on the day. It's the only way to do it, bar just keep the players keep playing and playing and playing. Yeah, it is. Look, it's the equivalent to the Champions Cup. Um, teams travel from all over Europe. Uh, a result has to be made on the day. You can't you can't just decide we're going to meet again next hour to postpone a semi-final of Europe. It just doesn't work like that. Uh, I suppose then it's a question of getting the best alternative to decide the match at the end. And to be fair, this competition has grown since 1996. We've only had one other penalty shootout in that period of time. So it's it's extremely rare. Um, I've heard other suggestions during the week, people talking about a golden point, for example. In other words, whoever scores first, be it a, a penalty, a drop goal, a try. Yeah. But let's face it, you could be going another 10 or 15 minutes before that happens. Yeah. And I have no doubt as a spectacle, it would be a joke because the players were cramping as it was at the end of, the, the hundredth minute, if you ask them to go again for a potential another 10, 12 minutes, I actually think you could do serious damage to players. Plus the fact then you're asking them uh, to, to turn around to play a semi-final a week later. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't be in favour of the golden point. Uh, in terms of the way, and we were all sort of standing there, or, you know, I was doing the match on the radio. Uh, we knew that it was extra time. Uh, I mean, the other thing is, would you would you have preferred, in other words, if Toulouse had three tries and Munster had only two, that would have decided it, which would have been another disastrous way to go out. Um, the only other penalty uh, shootout that you had in 2009, the Leicester um, Cardiff. Uh, Cardiff one. I remember that, uh, you know, just five, six penalties. You ended up having forwards taking penalties. I remember having a chat with Martin Williams, who was the unfortunate fellow who, who missed the penalty. We were in New Zealand. Uh, on the twenty seven and the uh, twenty seventeen Lions tour, uh, we were down in, in Queenstown, just having a, a chat about good days, bad days, the vagaries of sport, and you could see he was still haunted by the fact that he missed the kick that day. At least the way it was structured the last day, you had your six goals like a penalty shootout. You had three frontline tickers, even though I wasn't sure if Dupont had ever kicked before. But sure, we should have known that fella could do anything. <laughs> do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, he could yeah. play full forward for Limerick and Hurling if somebody gave him exactly. a Hurling, no problem. Yeah. Uh, but look, it was, 
I think the best way to decide it, uh, but I did feel sorry for, like, Conor Murray's an experienced head. I felt really sorry for Ben Healy, who, like, is an outstanding place kicker, but he could have been a hero in normal time. He could have been a hero at the end of extra time. Then his two penalties just seemed to drift at the very last second, which uh, is a horrible experience for that young fellow, but I don't think anybody uh, could have any rec- recriminations against him or any other player. Well, you're right. It is extremely rare. I mean, 15 years ago, as you said, the last time it happened. Still, though, I, I, I do admire the fellas' uh, optimism that they're asking James Lowe as he willing to step up and kick for Leinster. Should it happen on back-to-back second weekends this weekend? I think the chances of it happening again are so remote. But anyway, <laughs> what's your thoughts, Fiona? I mean, look, it is. it does seem cruel, as we mentioned, but it's the only viable solution, really, as Donald mentioned, when you're trying to safeguard players' protection. If you imagine another 20 minutes with Toulouse having to play with Munster for a golden point and then they have to line out again this weekend, it would be almost impossible. No, no, definitely not in rugby anyway. The bodies are on the line. You could see everyone was out in their feet at the end of, of the game. They had absolutely nothing left in the tank. Um, yeah, I think it's it, it's probably the only viable option. I, I suppose they could look at, and which is, it's it's cruel as well. They could look at maybe first try scored would be an option and it, it, would, it would enforce people maybe at times at the start of the game, not going for penalties, trying to get that first try scored. And uh, that's another cruel way. But look, um, I, I, I know, Don has spoke about uh, forwards going up taking kicks and, and nobody wants to see that but but I even think six different players it takes pressure off the one the, the one or two guys you know that we saw Ben Healy a lot was on his shoulders we knew into Mac DuPont maybe they, they weren't going to miss if they had another three behind them that were taking kicks it might have been a different story when it came to the second mm. three so so it, it, look it, it it's there and, and there has to be something Um, it just was when you're sitting in the stand it was awful cruel to watch poor Ben Healy have to go through that but I think this is the making of him I think it will actually make him a, a much much better player because we know he has it in him Briefly on Peter Manny uh, Donald before we move on he does seem to be playing the best rugby of his career and I, I, I don't say that lightly but again a bit like Fiona mentioned I watched him last Saturday I mean almost single-handedly sometimes take on the Toulouse back and he did have a lot of support but he stood out head and shoulder he really is a player in form at the moment I think he's playing the best rugby of his life. I think there was a period there about 18 months ago when uh, he came under a lot of scrutiny. Obviously, um, you know, the emergence of so many incredible back row forwards, uh, like Leinster of five or six of them alone. You have Timoney up in the north, uh, a couple more in, in, in Connacht. Jack O'Donoghue was a fellow playing out of his skin for the last two years. And because of the element of competition, can't get into that national squad. But you know, you can go one way or the other. When you reach that kind of 32, 33 age bracket in your career, you can be sour and you can sort of begrudge the younger fellows who are coming up behind you. Or you can embrace your role and you can add value in every way you can. So I think uh, it started for Peter at international level. If you go to the Six Nations, he wasn't a starter in most of those games, but he off the field apparently was outstanding in terms of his contribution, his leadership, mm. his capacity to work with the likes of Caelan Doris and Josh van der Flair. Um, and then every time he came on, he made a massive impact. Uh, I think that drove him more then when he went back. Obviously, he was starting with Munster. And I think he said, fine, Andy Farrell, you have a role for me here, but I'm not prepared to go quietly. And that's the way that he's played. Um He's been carrying, like he's carrying a couple of knocks as well. I remember speaking to his dad after the Exeter game and, and um, 
you know, he he's his body was in pieces. He didn't play, I think, whatever game it was at the Ulster game in, in Raven Hill, he didn't play. But uh, he was unbelievable the last day. I mean, I haven't seen anybody who has the capacity to understand and recognise within a, a, a sort of a split second. When you go for a ball in terms of, you know, when you see the opportunity to go for a post or when it's not on and you stay out, his understanding of that, I think, is better than anyone I've seen. His yeah. line ability has always been there. Um, but I think it, yeah, you go back to Exeter and you go back to Toulouse. What was the thing that kept Munster in those games, kept them competitive? It was their work at the breakdown. I mean, Munster had 19 turnovers on Saturday. I mean, that's incredible. When you yeah. consider you might have only 10 lineouts in a match, that's yeah. 19 possessions. That's 19 possessions where you've actually pilfered the ball from the opposition. So psychologically, it's huge. Uh, the defensive stand that Munster had in that second half uh, and three of, four, three of the four poaches that Peter Romani had I think we're within about 10 metres of the try line. So they were massively significant. And then when you're in a cauldron like the Aviva, where you have 40,000 Munster supporters, winning a turnover was as good as scoring a try. Yeah. I mean, it just energised everyone. And that's the difference, I think, between a game like last weekend, where 40,000 people are fully engaged in the match, and some of the internationals that you get in the Aviva, where people are there to kind of be entertained. It's a day out. They're going in and out of the bar. Everybody in that crowd was 100% engaged by what was happening on the pitch. And that made for an unbelievable atmosphere. That meant that every small significant game, be it like Fiona highlighted the scrum, and the scrum was under severe pressure from the outset. But then there was one or two where uh, when John Ryan came on initially, Munster got two big gains. They got two penalties. Again, the crowd sensed how vital and how important. So from that point of view, I, I just think it was a, an unbelievable occasion. And, and you know, Peter Manny doesn't need to do any more to sort of cement his position at the greats of Munster Rugby. But that performance will go down as one of the all-time greats. Absolutely. And his mindset it has to rub off as well, Fiona. I mean, as Nolan said, he could have been sour and bitter like you were towards the end of the stages of your career. But he's gone the opposite <laughs> way and he's embraced... He's embraced the challenge around. And I'm looking at Alex Kendellan, and he's he's the future. Like, he's the next generation. He's And he's a freak of an athlete as well, by the way, um, Kendellan. But that has to rub off on the younger guys like Kendellan, like Hodnett, um, who are on the pitch watching this guy do what he does, right? Yeah, and they can see the heart and the passion that he brings as well. And that's and that's something that, you know, you might not see the times these young guys mightn't feel it as much as it would have gone on in the past. But if you can see Peter Romani out there, I mean, Josh Witcherly, I think, latched onto a ball early on as well, a couple of metres out. And everyone just, just stood up and shouted. And you have... You have the, the likes of Peter Romani at training and exactly, you know, showing you, okay, you don't go in there. You, it's it's hard to coach when to know to win for that poach. It's a very hard thing. He has that natural instinct. And if you're watching him training and you have him beside you, it's definitely going to rub off. And especially in these big games, they mm. saw the accolades he got. And, and the crowd, and as a player, you want to be that person coming off the pitch with your toe holding your two shoulders and having everybody standing up and going mad. Right, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll move on to Leinster if we can because they're obviously playing this weekend it's, it's to lose and, and not so much to say really about the Leicester performance Donald, other than that they were very comfortable they never really had to get out of kind of third gear um, first half it was almost done and dusted by that stage um, so again they're going into this an awful lot fresher than the French club are and, and you'd have to make Leinster favourites in Dublin wouldn't you? 
Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, but look, you've got to tip your hat. I mean, there's there's two schools of thought in terms of, uh, um, you know, a lot has been made of the fact that um, Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster kept all their frontline troops at home for that three weeks when they were uh, when the other lads were in South Africa. Um, but there's an element then you go into a into a cauldron like Welford Road where. I think 14 of the Leicester team had started against Bristol Bears the previous weekend. So they're battle-hardened. They know exactly what's coming. And, you know, there's a question mark, will, will Leinster be able to get up to speed early on? Oh, uh, you mentioned, obviously, I, I, I was heading home straight after the match. So um, uh, by the time the penalty shootout and everything was over, I was in the car, turned on the radio to listen to the Leinster game on the way down. 20 minutes into the game, there were 20 points up. I mean, it was game over. It was yeah. phenomenal. I obviously watched the game back when I came home, but uh, I just think Leinster are so clinical. Uh, no, I didn't think Leicester, to be fair, they've turned a corner under Borthwick this year. But when you looked at the team and you looked at the makeup of their pack, like, I couldn't see anything other than a Leinster victory prior to this game. But I think the manner with which they blew the Tigers away in the opening 20 minutes just left Leicester shocked. Now, to be fair to Leicester, they came out of the second half, they responded. But uh, even though Leinster on the scoreline lost the second half, they were never stressed, they were never under pressure. And you talk about the breakdown and, you know, the uh, Omani's influence in Dublin. You look at the quality of Leinster's breakdown work, the speed of their recycle. I mean, everybody's talking about uh, what a brilliant game Gibson Park had. And he's yeah. been playing great rugby this year. But all of that is facilitated by the quality of ball that they get at the breakdown. And every single Leinster player, it's a, it's a carry-on almost from the Joe Schmidt era, when that was Ireland's point of difference. I think Leinster have brought this up to another level. I think Stuart Lancaster um, has been, uh, I think Hugh Hogan was involved in that, Dennis Leamy is in there now. Um, but they have brought their breakdown skills to a different level. And while everybody works on their set piece and, and all that, the breakdown is where it's at at the moment. And the quality and the speed of their recycle, that is what's giving them the edge in the games. That plus, I think, their, their ability to do the basic things so well. But when you look across the board, I mean, 13, I think, was it uh, Ross Maloney and uh, Jimmy O'Brien were the only two players starting that didn't feature in the Six Nations. I mean, that's not a bad starting point for anything. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not. And I, I don't know what it does it say. It doesn't say anything about the, uh, the strength and depth of the premiership, um, Fiona, once again, where, where you don't have English clubs involved. And look, if you take Saracens out of the picture, right, and this is not to be blunt about it, if you take Saracens out of the picture of the last 10 years, English clubs have, have massively underachieved for the value in which they put their own league, if you get me. Um, so I don't know what that says about where the English game is at, but you can, t- you can take nothing away from Leinster, I guess. No, you could take nothing against Leinster, but definitely those English clubs. I mean, we saw Leicester against Connacht. Connacht could have beaten them twice as well. Um, we saw Sale at the weekend. You know, they, they were absolutely nowhere near racing. So so I, I don't think the English love their league and all that, but I, I I do wonder when they come to Europe, I expect bigger games. I know we have seen big, massive games, especially uh, Leicester and Leinster over, over the years, but I just thought Leinster were very clinical in, in that first half against Leicester. I think they took the foot off the pedal a little bit. 
in the second mm. half. And, and, you know, you obviously had the Ashton Troy and they gave um, Ford a little bit more space. So that's an area they will obviously have to tighten up because they won't be able to do that um, against uh, this team next week, against Toulouse next week. But let's, let's start just so clinical. I mean, Van der Fleer, that lovely Troy off the mall, every set, their set piece seems to be going well. Everything is take, is taken over them. And as Dona said, the, the speed of ball, the speed of ball at the breakdown, they've really worked on that. The footwork, I think it's more the footwork in the carries around that that's getting them into these spaces and the ball placement. It's giving Gibson Park uh, the ball and the plate. And they just seem to have from 1 to 15 when they play against teams, they seem you would nearly have the whole Leinster squad on your team. Yeah, I, what's your thoughts then on, on this weekend? Then, if you want to like to lose it, would you have as Donald said, would you have Leinster favorites to go and do it? You'd yeah, have you'd have to. And they're playing good rugby, as I said. You know, uh, Toulouse, obviously, after back of 100 minutes of rugby, have gone home, will have to come back. Um, can they produce? We know Toulouse can produce magic moments. We know their pack is absolutely immense. Um, I'm not too sure. I think, you know, Ras Maloney's obviously good. I think I've heard chatter, maybe James Ryan injury. So the second row could be an area and the scrum might be somewhere that Toulouse might go after. Um, that's and and But Leinster just seem to have guys coming through that are ready to go. I know Baird was probably due to to play a bit of um, with Leinster Ray at the weekend, but he could be someone called upon now as well. Mm. Who knows? But I, I think uh, Leinster at home in the Viva, if they can uh, if they can bring the fans, bring the noise, they'll 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 have great game of rugby, and and Toulouse won't be able to keep up with the the back three, especially Keenan was immense again. What about the next season's competition, Donald? Just to, to kind of take some wider uh, points uh, in the game this week. So we know that there's going to be four pool matches for the Champions Cup next season. There won't be the home and away last 16 legs. So you're going effectively from four pool games into the last 16 knockout straight through to the final then. Um, is that more or less what you expected? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's what I expected, but I don't like the format, to be honest with you. Um, I think one of the issues here, you see, the... the the competition was expanded about three years ago from 20 to 24 teams. Half of that was due to the COVID, COVID issues and leagues weren't finished properly. Um, then you had the introduction of the, the, the back-to-back. The, 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 initially, the back-to-back games were supposed to be brought in at the quarterfinal stage. Uh, that had to be abandoned uh, last season because of, of other postponements. My biggest gripe with it, I don't think there's 24 teams good enough to play in an elite European competition. That's the first thing. The second thing is, after the pool stage, you're only getting rid of um, 18. 18, yeah. So you're still, whereas in the old pool stages, it sort of separated the wheat from the chaff. Uh, you had your six pool matches, which were straight into a quarterfinal. So you were into mm-hmm. that elite of 18. Now we have this kind of a holding block if you like where we go from 24 to 16 and then we go to eight wait, 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 like so, so, so you're in danger Donald then of, of becoming like the Champions League in football effectively where nobody really pays attention to the group stages because everyone knows that the action really only kicks in when you reach the knockout stages you have 24 teams competing for 16 positions here which effectively means like this year you can have a side that loses two or three games and still gets through to the next round absolutely I mean uh I think somebody said Ulster only lost one game um, and, and they failed to make the, the quarterfinal. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. um, no, I did like, I thought the, um, the, the, the back-to-back brought something different. Uh, I'd love to see where you get to a scenario from the pool stage 
we go straight to a quarterfinal and have a back-to-back in those quarterfinals because yeah. the difference between a home and an away fixture at that level is incredible. And, you know, you could be unlucky in terms of, uh, you know, you could have one really rubbish team in your pool and everybody puts up 50 points against them and that's the difference between getting the home and away match. Yeah. Uh, the other aspect that we haven't spoken about is um, the fact you're now going to have three South African teams in the pool stage or in, yeah, in, in the European Cup next year. As a concept, is it right? I mean, is a European Cup... How do you have a European Cup with three South African teams in it? Uh, um, the, the, the vagaries of the draw, we could be going up and down. I mean, it's bad enough driving to Dublin every weekend, like having to go up and down to South Africa every second. Oh, yeah, but you hate Dublin. You incredible. hate Dublin. Not at all. It's many a good night in Dublin, as you know. <laughs> yeah. But do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. we're talking about, um, like, is it right? It, it's probably a debate for another day, but is it right that South African teams are going to be competing in Europe? Um, no. The only thing I would say, we probably need them on the basis that the Welsh and the Italian teams have been so awful this year mm. that uh, there's no doubt. And we see how they've improved in the URC. And I mean, it's going to be incredible that that last round of um, of games in the in the URC is going to be incredible in terms of who gets their home quarterfinals. So um, it's, it's a difficult one. Uh, and I know we're probably talking, we'll talk down the road about the potential for a new international competition but you, so you could have South African teams competing in the rugby championship say the Springboks in the rugby championship and the world championship but the provincial sides playing in the URC and in Europe it just it just doesn't sit right no it doesn't and I like Donald's um, idea of a home and away quarterfinal Fiona because that would you know really put a premium and an emphasis on the pool stage if you have 24 teams vying for eight positions and you're getting rid of everybody else, and then you would still have the extra round with the home and away with the quarterfinals, but it just means the best teams will get through to the knockout stage. This just seems like sure everyone can get through, and sure the group yeah. stages don't matter, really, you know. No, that's it, and I, I love the idea. I mean, we saw the best the best games of rugby in those uh, two legged uh, in those two legged toys this year. But I suppose you have to look at with the South African teams now, and if you did have that home and away, do you want to be going over to an away game in South Africa in five days and have to adjust altitude and all that kind of stuff? So I, I think with the South African teams in there, that definitely got rid of that idea. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm I'm totally disagreeing with Donal about there's too many teams. We saw this some of the the group stages you know some of the games this year they did teams didn't need to win and we didn't see the level and quality of rugby cut it down and it, it makes the competition far more enjoyable in each game then we see an absolute belter yeah i know absolutely yeah well look we'll, we'll, we'll do it i guess um... I, I i think for you to be fair the adjustments uh urc uh, or epcr as they are now they've actually done a good a, a great job in getting the tournament to the stage that we're at now because of all the like remember a couple of months ago the 28 nils and the, the postponements and all that type of thing so it has been incredibly difficult uh, and I think there will be a period of adjustment but I would strongly argue for going back to 20 teams six games at the pool stage straight into your quarter final if you had the scope to have another game by doing home and away in the quarter final so be it I mean having that uh, the second leg, you know, you do get a reward for finishing higher or having the second leg at home. Um, but look, that that's for another day. But I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that it has been incredibly challenging 
for the EPCR to get to the stage where we're at now. And you have to say, we've arrived here with four incredibly exciting teams. Yeah, absolutely, regardless of how we get there, I guess. Um, right, let's just also talk about, the, 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 I guess, the, the annual calendar, if you like, in an international structure, um, Donald, before we leave it, because there's meetings taking place in Dublin for the chief stakeholders this week about trying to align the season, the structure of the season, I suppose, with, with a stronger pathway for developing nations. So essentially what they're proposing is a nation's championship, which will consist of two divisions. The top division would have 12 teams, six from each hemisphere, north and south, playing in the summer and the autumn slots. So, and ultimately ending them with it with a grand final. Um, is From what you know of this, does it seem to make sense in terms of align, aligning um, the, the, the season and the seasons together, north and south, and the annual calendar? And also, I guess, look, because we're dealing with a professional game here, it does seem like this is going to try and generate money for Southern Hemisphere teams, which badly need it, and equally to try and promote the developing nations to have them more on a par with um, their better international size, if you like. Your overall thoughts on whether or not this would work? Yeah, look, I, I, I was very interested in the concept when it was put, first put on the table about three or four years ago. Basically, what they're doing is they're looking to generate more revenue. The Southern Hemisphere countries, the big countries, Australia, New Zealand uh, in particular, are struggling to survive. And the bottom line is international rugby needs the All Blacks at their best. They need Australia to be competitive. Then you have that middle tier, Japan. Japan beat Scotland and, and Ireland in the last World Cup. They beat South Africa in the 2015 World Cup. So therefore, you're going to have to get meaningful competition for them. There is an imbalance in that. Like It drives New Zealand bananas. They come up, they play in Twickenham, uh, the rugby union, generate about 15 million is their return from that one game alone. New Zealand, they get their expenses paid. Like, you know, when Ireland go down, uh, for the, we have a three-test tour this summer, New Zealand generate nothing like that kind of money um, for all kinds of reasons. So therefore, you've got to, A, you've got to have an incentivization for the likes of Japan, for Fiji, for Samoa and these countries to bring them up to a level. Uh, what I like about this is it brings more meaning to the summer tours because, in effect, what's going to happen is the, the, this nation's uh, cup, which is played every uh, for uh, in, in the non-Lions and the non-World Cup year, okay? Yeah. So it's it's only two and every two years. four years, yeah. okay? So what happens, let's say Ireland are going to New Zealand this summer, they're playing three tests. Instead of that happening, they would go, they'd play a test against New Zealand, they'd play a test against Australia, and they'd play a test against Japan in this nation's competition. Then in the autumn block, they'd play against the other uh, countries that they hadn't played. So that would be, say, South Africa, Argentina, and Fiji. Uh, and then the results of those overall, you have a final or you have a second or third place or whatever. So it brings... Uh, I think, more meaning to the summer tours. Now, that said, you have to say, is there an element then that you lose the opportunity to blood younger players, to take them away? Because every game, you have the Six Nations, you have June, and you have November. If every game is involved in a competition, where do you, know, you get the chance to blood younger players? But that said, um, you know, sometimes you pick a guy against um, a Fiji or... Uh, Romania in a, in a test in November. And what does it mean? You beat them by 60, 70 points. I mean, that doesn't tell you a whole lot either. Overall, 
uh, I think it's it's uh, something has to change in the rugby calendar. Um, of course, the big carrot in this is they reckon it'll generate about 40% more revenue across the board. And given what's happened with the pandemic, the game is hemorrhaging money. Uh, the English clubs, one of the reasons they're not as competitive as they were, there's a salary cap introduced in for the Gallagher Premiership, which reduces uh, their uh, squad spend from six and a half million to five million. Like they say, the Welsh regions nearly have uh, more money than that. So there's a, there's a myriad of problems facing the game. And I think that this uh, is a step in the right direction. It brings the second tier countries in as well. And you have meaningful competition at international level through, across the board. And, uh, and that global um, calendar is becoming more in line. Yeah, and, and I guess it does allow the pathway um, for promotion for those second-tier nations, Fiona, to, to come up, which is crucial as well. I mean, there's no point saying you're trying to develop some of the weaker nations and have no pathway to try and compete against the top levels. When CBC bought into the game, I guess this was always on the cards, uh, along with the fact that we do need, I, I guess, a different structure for everyone across the board annually anyway. But with CBC at the helm, 40% more revenue, as Donald said, it's going to make an awful lot of sense to a lot of people, right? <laughs> Yeah, money is the is the main talking point, isn't it? And that's yeah. and that's look, that's just the nature of the game. I, I I think it's I think it's a really good idea. I mean, I'm watching the Super Rugby. You've got Fiji, Juani. Like these teams are really competing. They're putting it up to the Australian and and New Zealand teams over there. Um, and they're a lot. You know, they're they're very similar to what the national squads would would look like. So they need a competition to to aim for. They need the revenue, and I think this is the right idea. My only issue would be player welfare. Obviously, they'll be taught. And, and and that was an issue that came up in the past like it's an overload of games but I think as Donald said as as nations going into this you have to view it as a way of blooding players as well you can't just be flogging these guys that are coming from a Leinster Munster team um, because you want to win these competitions or you want to beat the All Blacks or you want to beat Australia you need to use it as a, as a way to to get these guys game time that are coming up through the ranks the likes of Tom Saher and Ken Dillon they need to be playing those games as well and, and, it, and it is it's better for them to play those games than to be going out beating the likes of Georgia or Romania or whoever by 50, 60 points or Canada. So so it is really, really good idea. It's just how the, the coaching staff and the teams look at it because we, we know at November international time and summer tour, that's where guys get caps and it needs to continue like that as well. They need to get a feel for that international rugby to be able to take that step forward. Okay, great stuff, uh, guys. As always, um, live coverage of Leinster against Toulouse on RT Radio 1 this weekend and online. Check out the RT Sport website for all the latest stories and the build-up. And we might talk next week more about Ronan O'Gara because La Rochelle once again in the semi-final and Ronan O'Gara's powers, coaching powers, show no sign whatsoever of slowing down. But for the moment, Donald and Fiona, thanks so much for your time. The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com.